Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Lissa Sparrow. And they like run around him and start licking his balls. And we're like, kind of like, ha ah, Like, <laughs> I guess it's their Valentine's Day too. <laughs> that and more. But before we get started, I want to tell you about another podcast. I think you're going to love Chris Soa's Sex with Strangers is a sex-positive documentary-style podcast exploring the sex industry and the fetish communities around the world. First episode was recorded in Japan. It's called Sex in Tokyo. Since then, Chris has traveled to Utah to interview kinky Mormons. He's gone to Mumbai, India to talk about trans sex work and arranged marriages. This past February, he flew to Amsterdam to record an episode called Valentine's Day in Amsterdam's Main Red Light District. There are 30 episodes of Sex with Strangers so far, covering everything from the sex party scene in New York to hookup culture in Iceland to the inspiring story of two Alaskan sex workers who became registered lobbyists in order to fight for the rights of people working in Alaska's sex trade. You can find Chris Soa's Sex with Strangers on iTunes, Stitcher, and at sexwithstrangersshow.com. Also, Chris reached out to us directly to advertise his podcast on risk. And you can do that too. If you have something you'd like us to advertise, you can reach me at Kevin at risk show.com. Wow. Did you hear that? Someone rang my doorbell and I decided to live dangerously and just leave it right in there. You know whose doorbells I'd like to ring? Janice Turner and Brad Larson, because they are $25 or more Patreon patrons of ours, folks. If you go to patreon.com slash risk, you can become a patron of the show. You can help keep this running. We depend very much on the help of our fans, and it means the world to us. And if you're someone like Janice Turner or Brad Larson and you pledge, or whatever, I don't know if pledge is the word, but you you give $25 a month or more, I'll give you a little shout-out on the show like this. You know, we were just talking, I think what we're going to start doing is putting out some stories for the patrons at Patreon. You know, we have... A lot of stories in our archives that I've been meaning to run on the show forever, but, you know, the dime comes and I think, ah, but that doesn't quite fit with the mood or the theme of this particular episode, so they get pushed aside, and I'm like, no, you know, let's start putting out an extra two or three stories a month there for the Patreon patrons at patreon.com slash risk. Become a member because there are so many perks and prizes and fun stuff that you find there every week. There's new stuff uploaded there just for the patrons. So go there and help us out. Folks, oops, wait. I was about to end the show. <laughs> I'm supposed to say, now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Takuya Kuroda behind me now. Not, not the best. Not the best, my Japanese pronunciation. Takuya Kuroda. Still bad. Still not good. Let's just quit. Let's just throw in the towel with pronouncing that guy's name. I mean, obviously, we're going to do this show. Now, we're calling this week's episode Identity Crisis. These are three stories shared at recent live show. Wow. I might be having an identity crisis of my own. These are three stories shared at recent live shows where the storyteller thought, who the hell am I really? Or, Or what have I become? Or someone in their life said, who the hell do you think you are? Now, in a little bit, we are going to hear from the brilliant comedian Matt McCarthy. He's based in Los Angeles. Matt has shared a bunch of great stories on the show in the past. We recorded him at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. But before that, we're going to share a story that was told at our recent Minneapolis show at a Brave New Workshop there in Minneapolis. This is Lissa Sparrow who you can find on Facebook at First Year Queer. I believe that's the name of her one-woman show. And this story covers a lot of the same ground, so we might as well just call it the same damn thing. Now, there is something very important to know about this story. Boy, oh boy, do I have a trigger warning for you. There's a fart in it. Guys, someone in the audience farts in the middle of this story. If you are a Patreon patron of ours, you already know this because we we isolated this clip, shared it amongst the staff over and over and over again in the past week, and then decided to share the little clip there. But if you're not a Patreon patron, you're just going to have to listen like a detective for that fart. It's in there. It's coming. So if you're triggered by farts, Ain't nobody here to hold your hand. Buckle up, motherfucker. This is Lissa Sparrow with a story we call First Year Queer. didn't start with a bang for me. It started with an ugly sobbing session as I soaked alone in a bathtub. My long-term boyfriend, who is my best friend, we had just broken up. I was having a falling out with my closest friends, and my suicidal ideation was starting to cross into a territory that made me afraid to be alone with myself. But I was in therapy, so I was using those skills, and I'm like, Lissa, you got to get the fuck out of this tub. You can't just sit here and cry all night. So I went to my journal, and I wrote it out. This year, I'm going to try a lot, and I'm going to put myself out there. Of course I'm fucking terrified. That means I care, and I want to care. One of the things I really cared about was not suppressing my sexuality anymore, I had known for such a long time, even before I was attracted to men, that I was attracted to women. And I knew I 
was probably non-monogamous because monogamy never really worked. And I was definitely like a closeted kingster, but I did not know how to go about that at all. But three days after that bathtub of sadness, I had a date. And this one felt different. Like I had tried dating women in the past, but it was so awkward and it was like two bisexual girls and we never knew what we were doing and it felt like friends. And the farthest I ever got with a girl sexually is, okay, so I'm five feet tall and really petite and I went out with this like six foot tall glamazon who was like super curvy and on a second date we like drunkenly finger banged each other. But like my arms are so short that I couldn't like touch her at the same time she was touching me. And... Like, her boobs were the size of my head and I didn't know what to do with them because I'm like, I have to use both hands. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I was so mortified, like, I never saw her again. And that was two years previous to this date. So I was like, time to try again, Alyssa. Um, But this felt different because Lexi and I had actually met when we were teenagers. She messaged me on Tinder and she's like, didn't we go to an arts camp together like 10 years ago? And I was like, oh my God, yes, I have a photo album of that. I'm going to look and find you. And she's like, don't, because I had the ugliest bowl cut and I was 14 and I didn't talk to anyone but my sister and you won't remember me. And I like looked her up and I'm like, okay, you did have a horrible bowl cut. I kind of remember you, but whatever, like we connected a lot through messenger. It took a month before we actually went on a date and I was sitting there and I was like, okay, like this is going to be a date date, but I didn't really know what I was doing. So she shows up and I'm like, oh, you do not have ugly bowl cut anymore. She has like gorgeous, dark, long hair and she's just like really classically beautiful, dresses like kind of gender neutral very little makeup, has this really calm energy around her. And I'm like, okay, this is good. And like go in for the hug. And again, I'm super short. So I can like see the slow-mo of like my face colliding with her boobs. And I was like, ah, like kind of like side faced it. So I didn't like go right in. And I was like, that was not what I thought our first boob experience would be. Um, and I was like, can I buy you a drink? Cause that's a date, right? And she's like, no, that's okay. And I was like, oh fuck. So I was like, here, I can try this. I can flirt. I'm I'm like, you look really nice today. And she's like, oh, you too. And I'm like, fuck, damn it, God. And I was like, okay, so we're sitting down and we started talking about being bisexual in theory, which was great because we were both like kind of academic-y. And like, we had so much in common. Like, we both grew up in small towns. We both ended up going to Catholic colleges and we're like, why? We both (laughs) knew we were bisexual since we were really young, but we hadn't done anything with women because we ended up in monogamous relationships with men. So it was like, me too, me too, ah, ah. And then finally I was like, Lexi, can this be a date? And she's like, yeah, if you want it to be. And I was like, yes, if you want it to be. (laughs) Um, So we're like, yay, we did it. We're on a date. Um, So the next month was like super sweet, like, we went to a Gorilla Girl Arts Conference and we're like, we got to tell our mutual friends, we're like, we're on a date. Um, and like, it was really sweet and innocent and felt like we were teenagers, even though we were in our mid-twenties and been like banging guys for years. Um, then we got to Valentine's Day and we had not done much physically yet. And we're like, um, yeah, let's go for it. We should like lose our girl genities together. <laughs> 
So we like went out on a date first because we're like, we got to work up to this. So like I grabbed my roommate's dog that we both like adored and we're like, we're going to go to the dog park with him. And he's like this huge 120 pound black lab that's like super gay. Um, Because every time we brought this dog to the dog park, like all these little dogs like are right at his dick level and they like run around him and start licking his balls. And we're like, kind of like, ha like... I guess it's their Valentine's Day, too. (laughs) So we're like, well, he got his in. (laughs) So we, like, go back to my house, and we're like, okay, I guess tonight's the night we, like, go through with this. So I was nervous, and we were just, like, both, like, smiling at each other and checking in, like, all right. Um, So then, like, I'm getting the room ready, and she's, like, playing on her phone. I don't know. And I'm, like, starting to be petrified, because I realize, like, the girl-on-girl sex that I've seen in porn is usually made by men for men. So it's, like, two blonde chicks with huge fake tits and long nails, like, going at each other's clits like it's like they're a DJ they're just like (laughs) and then they're like licking each other's nipples but staring at the camera like I'm like well I know it's not supposed to be like that but I don't know what the fuck I'm doing um so then she gets in the room so we start with like the soft kisses and we're like oh we have to put our hair back because we both have really long hair and now we like realize why guys are like tie your hair back because like we're attacking each other with our long hair as we make out And then we're like, we're doing the soft thing, but we're like, I guess we have to get naked. Like, that's kind of how things happen. Um, So we start getting all the way undressed. And this is the first time we're like fully naked in front of each other. And I start doing like the soft kisses and her skin's so soft. And I'm like kissing her breasts. And I'm like, and then I like poke my head up. Like, is this still okay? And she's like, yeah, it's good. It's good. And I'm like, okay. So I'm like, I'm ready to take the plunge. (laughs) As I start like working my way down to be in between her legs, I like start shaking. And I'm like, holy fuck, like don't have an anxiety attack right now. And I'm like, oh God. I start thinking about all the times I've suppressed my sexuality throughout my whole life. And I'm like, I can't look at her. Like, I don't know how to look at a vagina. And then I'm like, I can feel myself. Like, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to start to cry right now. Do not do it. Like, there's a naked girl in front of you at Valentine's Day. You are not going to cry. But then, like, it gets to a point where, like, I can't really move. And I start, like, crunching up. And, like, I'm visibly shaking. And my throat's, like, closing up. And she's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I, like, I start crying. And I'm like, I don't know how to look at you. Like, I can't look at you. And she's like, it's okay. It's okay. So she just holds me for a while as I have a little existential crisis. I told her about all the times I wanted to come out and I didn't. Like, when my dad told me he doesn't think gay couples should be able to adopt, he's loosened up since then. (laughs) And when I studied abroad and I was convinced, like, this is my time to come out, and then one other chick that was an American came out before me, and then all the other girls decided they didn't want to get ready for clubs with her anymore. They didn't want her checking them out. So I was like, well, I don't want to be kicked out of this group. Like, and I didn't say anything. Or all the times when I worked in a gym and I was in the locker room and somebody is like, I hope there's no lesbians in here. I'm like, well, I'm in here, but I'm not here to ogle your tooties. Like, what the fuck? And like, so all of that that I've suppressed my whole life, like, I can't look at this naked girl that I've been dating in front of me. So finally she's like, it's okay. You can look at me. You can look at me. I'm giving you permission. You can look at me. So I was like, all right, I got it. And I looked at her. I was like, well, you look really good. Um, So I'm like, okay, I'm going to try again. Uh, So then I, like, go for it, and I, like, 
get between her legs, and I'm like, I've never been up this close to a vagina. And I'm like, well, I'm, you just got to start. So I, like, dive in, and I'm like, nice, all right, okay. Like, I'm getting the feel for it. And, like, there's all this stupid humor about, like, oh, vaginas taste like tuna. I'm like, this does not taste like tuna. Like, <laughs> I didn't know what it was. I was, like, ready. Like, I've tasted my own ones because I'm like, I got to prep. <laughs> like, but... <laughs> and tart a little bit and then like she starts making little noises and like I'm touching her all over and I'm like this is great so I'm like I'm gonna make her come this is like my rocky moment so I'm like like just just in my head though so then like I just really go for it and she gets off and I'm like that was so satisfying like that was so much more satisfying than ever like with a guy coming who's just like like uh like that felt great and then she's like okay it's my turn so then I lay down I have been later informed somebody told me this is lesbian missionary where it's like I went down on you you got off now you go down on me and I'll lay down (laughs) you get it damn it um so then she's like okay well I don't know what I'm doing so just let me know if I do anything wrong and I'm like okay you got this so she puts her hands between my legs and then her fingers start to go up my butthole and I'm like um maybe not there and she's like oh my god and I'm like it's okay it's okay so then she has the same experience like she goes down on me and I'm like this is great um and then she like I get off and like we're cuddling and she's like I think we just won Valentine's Day and I was like yeah we did it's odd but not but that was the only time Lexi and I ever had sex I feel like we both got this huge validation together and then we were like free to live the rest of our fucking lives (laughs) like It's been like a year since then and I checked in with her for this and I'm just like, how you been? And she's like, good. I have like a serious girlfriend now and she like goes with me to family events. I'm like, that's great. My life's gone in a little bit of a different direction. So I just became like an ethical slut, basically. Non-monogamous and like started going to kink things and started dating women. And I had a first date like a few months ago with a woman that went very differently. Her name's Jazzy. And the first date with Jazzy, first of all, she's the same height as me. So that's new. Because if we're like, we can kiss each other standing up. And then we were making out and she's like, um, do you want to fuck me with a strap on? And I was like, oh, I've never seen a strap on, but yes, I do. And she's like, you can wear mine because we're the same size. So like I get into it and like we go for it. And she's like, you're such a pro. And I was like, well, I've been penetrated for 10 years. So I've, I've had some time to like think about this. And then she's like, and then we're ready. And she's like, a month later, we go to a big kink sex party together. And it's my first one like this. And I feel like this is my debutante's ball. I'm ready. And I'm like, the only place you can do sexy stuff at this one is in one giant room. So I'm like, anything you do, everybody gets to watch, including her girlfriend, who is one of the girls I went on dates with like two years prior, who is like, you're not experienced enough. And I was like, okay. So she's like, you guys can do whatever, but just know that I'm going to be across the room watching. And I was like, all right, no pressure. Um, So I was like, I'll just give you a sexy massage. And she's like, well, I don't care if I'm all the way naked. So like she gets undressed and I'm like, okay. So like I start the sexy massage, but it gets sexier and sexier. And I'm like, what the hell? I can be completely naked. And she's like, you know, I have my strap on. And I was like, all right, let's do this. I was getting all strapped up and just letting everybody 
a lot of dudes were very into this scene. I realized afterwards, they're like, I like that. <laughs> but like, I get it on. And then we're going at it. And like, I thought I would be nervous. Her girlfriend like gives me a thumbs up. Like, yeah. I'm like, all right. But it was awesome. I felt so validated. And then like, I just kicked my suppressed sexuality in the ass. And I'm like, yeah, all y'all bitches get to see lesbian, gay, girl-on-girl sex. Not that fake, like, shit from porn. And, like, afterwards, I was just like, yes, like, I feel like a sexy rock star right now. Since then, I just feel like, yeah, sure, like, I get suicidal ideation every now and then. But every time I'm like, shut the fuck up, suicidal ideation. Like, I'm finally living my life. Thank you. show is the holidays and I thought about what the holidays mean to me and uh, I guess the official start of the holiday season is Thanksgiving and uh, the night before Thanksgiving is the biggest drinking night of the year. Bigger than New Year's Eve, bigger than your birthday, bigger than everything. So I have three Thanksgivings that I want to share with you. The first is uh, 1997 This was the height of WCW versus WWF, the Monday Night Wars. (laughs) Monday Night Raw versus Monday Nitro. And uh, I was a freshman in college, Fordham University, go Rams. Uh, And we decided, me and three other gentlemen, uh, none of us 21, that uh, we were going to outdo the night before Thanksgiving, Wednesday, and we were gonna make Monday before Thanksgiving our biggest drinking night of the year, and we called it the Monday Nightmare. <laughs> so we threw our hat into the Monday Night Wars. And uh, <clears throat> what it was, was we bought a handle of Guatemalan rum, Bacardi Limon, and we did shots. And we 
four of us drank the entire handle of rum and decided, because I had bought another handle to bring back to Rhode Island with me when I left the next day, I drew a line on the label of that one. I was like, okay, we can only drink this one to here because I gotta, people are counting on me. We were so drunk, beyond drunk. Like, you know, you can't even imagine how drunk we were. The things I do remember are uh, trying to play Super Nintendo with uh, not my roommate, but a, a guy who lived on our floor. And I don't know if you've ever drunk drove Mario Kart, <laughs> but it is so impossible. And I mean, I was so drunk, it was like, it, it felt like I had rubbed my eyes for like five minutes and like seeing through like cheesecloth. I mean, everybody was fucked. Uh, my, the guy who lived in the room next door, he threw up so much that like, I've heard of bursting blood vessels in your eyes, but like he did it to his face. He had pink face for a month afterwards. Um, also pretty sure someone, maybe him, threw up in my roommate's garbage bin because it wasn't in the room, but we found it in the communal bathroom, jammed in the window because he was clearly trying to get rid of the evidence. Uh, we had a great bathroom my freshman year. There was a handicapped shower stall, which for some reason meant there was a window in that one as well. So there was one guy that would smoke cigarettes in the shower. It was good times up in the Bronx. Uh, so then the next thing I remember is I'm laying on my bed, just trying not to die. And somehow I managed to lock my roommate out of the room. And so he's pounding on the door like, dude, let me in. I'm just laying on the bed, just a drunk, selfish piece of shit going, hold on. And I, well, why did I want him to hold on? I was about to pass out potentially forever. And uh, he keeps pounding on the door. And then, so then uh, one of our floor mates who, uh, this guy runs hot. He's a race car and he's always in the red. And he's like, what's going on? You can't get in there? And he's like, no, he's fucking drunk. He won't let me in. He's like, move. He starts pounding on the door like a fucking cop, you know? And I'm like, hold on! So like, open up the fucking door! Hold on! I remember specifically this pathetic yell of just like, hold on! Like, how could he do this to me? And so finally, there was just no getting around it, and I had to stand up, which was fucked beyond fucked and I somehow get to the door and I open it and uh, my buddy he, it's not even his room it's our floor mate and he's furious with me he's like what the fuck you want me to hold on to guy and I pass out and then we had to get up the next morning early and drive all the way to Rhode Island that uh, was fun so geniuses that we were we decide we got to do this again sophomore year because it, this became legendary. Like, the whole campus was talking about how drunk these four idiots got, the four horsemen of booze. <laughs> and so, sophomore year, 1998, Monday before Thanksgiving, the Monday nightmare, nightmare reared its ugly head again. I even printed up fake plane tickets to Guatemala and handed them out to everybody who was so bold as to drink Bacardi Limon with us that night. And... Um, 
so there was a few more of us, not a ton, but there was a few more guys than four of us. And we came up with the idea, okay, because somebody's like, so what are the rules? And we're like, you're right, there should be rules. <laughs> so we decided, we weren't so out of our minds that we were gonna do the power hour with rum. For those of you who don't know, the power hour is you take shots of beer every, se- every, every, every second. <laughs> Every minute, every time the, every 60 seconds, every time the, the hand goes around, another one. So we decide, all right, well, we need to be responsible. We'll do a shot every five minutes. And we drank the entire handle of rum in the hour. And then we decided to drink a liter of rum in 10 minutes. Uh... And then we were all awake for another hour, and then gone. One guy actually went out to the bar. Like, this guy's a chick. This is the guy that used to smoke cigarettes in the fucking <laughs> handicapped stall. And then apparently, like, he was trying to pull himself up on the stool. Like, he couldn't even stand. And then, like, other underage booze bags are like, dude, you gotta go. Uh, but the rest of us, we, we stayed in the... Uh, in our shared dorm, and, and I mean, like, like, Matt, like, literally walking into walls, like, drunk beyond drunk. I mean, at one point, when we were still doing the power hour, uh, one guy, he drank the rum and then immediately threw it back up, and we went into uh, rescue mode. We were like, okay, you clean him up, you bring him into the bathroom, get water on his face, we'll fucking clean up the floor, because we had to do another shot in four more minutes, and we did it. We got it done, and then the guy who just threw up, back at the plate! Swing away. Swing away, River Phoenix. So, uh, the highlights, <laughs> lowlights, that I recall of that night, I mean, thank God we were on the first floor. Because uh, at one point, me and my roommate were just laying in our separate beds, and there was a window with the shades down, like those, you know, uh, horizontal, like hard plastic, and I don't know how this other guy, I think he just hoped or assumed that the window was open behind this shade because he goes, hey guys, check this out, and he runs as fast as he can and dives into the shades, out the window, into the bushes, and then it's like these hard plastic, and, like it, and then they just went back into place like it never happened. And we're like, we gotta go outside and find him. I mean, just debaucherous. And so then junior year and senior year, we didn't do it at all. But we would talk about it fondly, like, fuck, remember how crazy we were? So then, uh, and every year since then, we're always, you know, we shoot emails or texts. We're like, it's the fucking Monday nightmare. So this year, the Monday before Thanksgiving, I... uh, completely fucked my marriage up. My wife figured out uh, what a shitty husband I am. And I was out going to an audition and she texted me and uh, said, don't bother coming home. We have a one-year-old son. And uh, my first thought was, well, at least, at least for some reason I, I had the foresight to bring all my pot and a bowl with me 
to this audition. All right. And uh, so I went and uh, stayed at my buddy's place. Smoked all the pot I could. Couldn't get high enough. We went out. I went back to the place to get like a, a bag of shit. And, you know, it was just ugly. And uh, I leave and we meet my friend that I'm staying with at a bar. And it's just one of those classic nights where I'm just like, I'm just going to have a few. And then all of a sudden, like, I wake up on his couch. And I'm just like, what the fuck happened? Fucking again. So I woke up on Thanksgiving and called my buddy, who's sober. And I said, well, where do I go? And he told me the address of a place. And I went there. And it's closed. So my first thought was, well, fuck it. I did everything I could. And then uh, my next thought was, uh, I have nowhere else to go. It's Thanksgiving, and I'm just standing here in the middle of Hollywood. So I called my buddy back, and I was like, uh, this place is closed. Is there another place I can go? And he said, yeah, there's a church over on such and such. Go over there. So I go over there, and I go into the wrong church. Uh, But it turned out to be the right one. I sat through an entire Catholic mass for the first time in years in the back, just trying not to bawl my eyes out. I couldn't even imagine what I looked like. And uh, I, I just kept waiting for something to happen. I kept waiting to hear the priest say something. Uh, I, I'm like, I'm listening to them singing. I'm like, is there something? That, I'm like looking at the stations of the cross. Like, is there something? Some sign? Just something. And uh, I never got it. And then uh, they start doing the, uh, the Eucharist. And I'm like, well, that's it for me. So uh, I go to the back of the church, and I'm looking at the bulletin board, you know, and pamphlets. I'm like, maybe they do something here. Maybe I missed it. Maybe I don't know. And by that point, mass had ended, and then the priests came down the aisle, and there was two of them. But one of them, I mean, they must have seen me. You know, I came in a little bit late, and I'm sitting in the back by myself. It wasn't exactly a packed house. It's Thanksgiving. He wishes me a happy Thanksgiving. I said the same. And then I noticed he was just kind of hanging around. You know, I got the feeling he was waiting for me to say something. Like, he's kind of like looking at the pamphlets and stuff. And I'm like, this guy knows what the pamphlets are. He fucking put them there. <laughs> so I go up to him and I go, do they do, do, they do like, you know, meetings here or anything? And, and uh, he goes, no, but uh, they, they do across the street, but not for a while. But uh, I'm sober. And I couldn't believe it. Like, I went there looking for help. I was waiting for the priest to say something to help me, and he did. And, I, and like, I, like, I found, like, the sober priest, you know? So he's like, well, down the street and around the corner, go there. They'll be open. So I went there. And uh, I'm pretty sure it was gays and lesbians only, but uh, they didn't care. And uh, they all hugged me, and then they're like, there's, a, there's another meeting around the corner. You should go to that one. So I went to that one. And then uh, I went and ate Thanksgiving dinner in a diner. And then uh, after that, I, I went to another meeting. And then uh, I, uh, I've been going to a lot of meetings. I'm, uh, I'm back at my place. I'm on the couch. I don't think we're married anymore. But, you know, it changes every day. And uh, it's funny because... Uh, I'm so grateful to be on that couch, whatever it means. I'm just grateful to be alive. You know, I think about all these fucking nights. You know, I woke up on a roof once in New York City. Like, (laughs) for real. 
the best I could figure, the bar we went to, you had to walk upstairs to go to the bar, and I don't remember this, but I got thrown out of the bar for being too drunk. And I, the closest I could figure, instead of going down the stairs, I must have gone up the stairs. And you ever have one of those dreams, like a waking dream, where you're like, you know, you think you're in the dream, and all of a sudden you realize, wait, I'm not at some weird rooftop cocktail party. I'm alone. It's 6 a.m. There's snow everywhere. I'm soaking wet. Uh, from rolling around in the snow probably all night, definitely pissed my pants. I had my wallet, I had my coat, so that's cool. Uh, I go back down the stairs and I, I'm in a closed bar for the night. My first thought was, wow, I could rob this place. And then uh, I see an emergency exit and I figured this fits the bill and I kick it open. And I didn't even turn around to see the name of the bar because I, I didn't want to know. I still didn't want to know. And then I got into a cab and went up to the Bronx and then slept for a couple hours. And then I had to move. I was moving that day from the Bronx to Queens. So I think about that. I think about times, uh, times I could have died, plenty of times I could have died. I think about laying on that couch. When we came home, when my son was born, our birthdays are only three days apart, and we came home from the hospital on my birthday. So I went out. And my excuse for getting completely blackout drunk was, well, I've never had people buying me birthday drinks and congratulations dad drinks before. You know, not what my fault. And uh, I woke up on that couch day after my birthday. No idea how I got on the couch. And it's like one of those mornings where I'm like, fuck, 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 think, think, think. Remember, remember what happened, remember what happened. Play it cool. And I couldn't fucking remember. And I, and I, but I thought, wow, maybe I was just snoring, you know? But uh, no, it was, we had a newborn baby uh, in our room. And, uh, and he woke up and my wife needed my, we, she had a fucking C-section. Thank God her sister was there. And now I'm on that couch again, and I'm so fucking thankful for that. Whatever it means. But um, I'm on uh, day 24, and uh, I'll see you guys on day 25. This is Risk. This is John Lee Hooker. Uh, remixed by the Avner here. And we just heard from Matt McCarthy, who you can find on Twitter at McCarthy Redhead. Now, I just emailed Matt to let him know he would be on this week's episode, and he wrote back, if you could, please mention my wife, Glennis, and I put our wedding rings back on, and sobriety has saved my marriage. 173 days sober now, baby. <laughs> So congratulations to Matt and Glennis. Before that, we heard a little interstitial and excerpt from the latest single by our good friends Reformed Whores, who you can find at reformedwhores.com. You can also look that song up on YouTube. They have a video for it. It's called Eating Out. 
Now, as you know, at risk and the story studio, we use stamps.com. We found that it's true, that it saves time. Instead of having to go wait in line at the post office, saves time for doing other things to grow your business. I can mail any letter, any package using just my computer and printer at home, and then the mailman picks it up. You can create your stamps.com account in minutes online, no equipment to lease, no long-term commitments. It's convenient, reliable, easy. Stamps.com will send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. They'll even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. No need to lease an expensive postage meter. And right now, you can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus postage, and that digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Now, our final story for us this week comes from our recent show in Burlington, Vermont. Tony Naj has shared on the show before. She once did the show when we did it in Boston. You can find her at TonyBaloney.com. That's T-O-N-I-Bologna.com. Here she is now with a story we call The Good Witch. So when my brother first started calling me a witch, I kind of saw it as a compliment. In my worldview, a witch is the ultimate feminist icon. You know, it's that pieces of femininity that men can't understand and then therefore threatened by. I wasn't that disturbed by it. You know, we were going for a walk and he kind of looked at me and he said, you know, you're my baby sister and I'll always love you, but... I'm not so sure about all that witch stuff. And I was like, okay, that's fine. And I just kind of changed the subject because my brother and I, we always talked about objectively kooky things, okay? We were really into conspiracy theories. I mean, we would spend countless hours discussing whether or not the moon landing was fake or 9-11 and the put options and World Trade Center 7 and... We were both kind of convinced that the pyramids were built by sound vibrations. And then he was really into flat earth. I don't know if you guys have heard the flat earth theory. That was definitely more his thing than mine. He'd be like, okay, Tony, listen, 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 okay? Uh, in the center is the North Pole, and then there's the earth that's a disc, and then Antarctica is like a wall that's surrounding us and keeping us in. And I was like, oh, so what's on the other side of the wall? Aliens. <laughs> of course, aliens. So being called a witch was kind of in the spectrum, right? I wasn't that concerned until my brother wrote a manifesto about it. Now, okay, my brother is famous for his manifestos. He will write a 16-page email that he will just send to you and that will tear your world apart, you know? You're not really expecting it. You're like, oh, an email from my brother. And you're like, oh, my God. 
when he wrote this manifesto, he sent it to a very strange array of people. He sent it to my mom's accountant. He sent it to an uncle that neither of us talked to. And he sent it to my mother. And in this letter, my brother was writing about how I was a witch and I was trying to murder him. And I was so fucking angry to hear that. I was like, how can you just call someone a witch and say they're trying to murder you out of nowhere? Especially when I felt I'd been spending the last two years of my life kind of taking care of him. So at the time of this letter, my brother and I were both living on my parents' property in rural New Hampshire. I had moved there about seven years ago because I birthed a child, and I was like, this is a cool place to have a family, fine. And then five years after that, my brother was getting a divorce, and so he decided that he also wanted to be in our childhood home. And when he first moved there, he was my neighbor, and it was fun, it was cool. My parents were there also, it was the summertime. You know, we would have family dinners, which we hadn't had for over two decades. And my brother would go swimming with me and my daughter, and he would make instant coffee out of lake water. And I'd be like, bro, you're gonna get Jardia. <laughs> but he just didn't care. A warning sign, I now see. It was sweet, you know? And then my parents left, and it was just my brother alone in the house, and I was his neighbor. And things started to get fucking weird. For one, when you live in a rural place, you really need a car. And my brother didn't drive. And you didn't want him driving either. He's the kind of person where you're like, ah, oh, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. So like, he also didn't want to be a burden, so his decision was, I'm gonna hire this woman to bring me food and cigarettes and therefore no one will have to drive me anywhere. Basically, my brother would get food delivered to him and do you guys want to know what he got delivered? A carton of eggs, and a carton of milk and a loaf of bread, and that's all he ate every single day. That's it, that's it, there's something else. That's like literally all he ate. And then he like kept really weird sleeping hours. So he would work on his music until six or seven in the morning, and then he'd wake up at three or four in the afternoon and drink like a disturbing amount of coffee and be really manic. Okay, that is all like, oh, okay, I've done that in college. Maybe that's not a big deal. But the other thing that started happening is because he didn't leave the property ever or the house ever, he also stopped showering and changing his clothes completely. I was the only person that he saw. I get that like maybe you don't need a shower or get dressed for your sister, but after weeks turned into months, the smell of a human being who hasn't showered or changed their clothes in months is horrific. Like, I can't describe to you the smell, but I can tell you that it left the most sour taste in my mouth. And I would take the sleeve of my shirt and I would try to smell inside my sleeve just to not show my offense. And the irony is, is my brother kind of knew it was weird and he would laugh about it with me sometimes. Like, I was dancing one day and I came over to hang out with him on Sibling Sunday because that's when we hung out. And he goes to give me a hug and immediately starts retching. He's like, bleh, bleh, your armpit smells so bad. And I'm like, can we please talk about the irony of you saying my armpit smell? Like, I've been sitting with you for months and you smell like a decaying homeless person. And we could laugh about it. And so that made me feel like maybe he's okay. 
Because that's kind of the thing with mental illness, right? It's like, especially when it's someone you love and know, they're not crazy all the time. It's sometimes, you know? And I felt like I could always talk my brother off the ledge. And he did start to get more paranoid and more dark and have greater delusions. But you got to understand something. My parents and I were really protective over him. When he was a little boy, he did not speak. He didn't speak at all. He was almost three years old, not talking. And the doctor said, he is autistic. And my parents obviously did not want to believe that. And then my mom had me and she brought me home from the hospital. And for the first time, my brother spoke. And he just walked around in circles, surrounding my mom and chanting, baby, baby, Tony, baby, baby, Tony. And you know what? My brother hasn't shut the fuck up since, okay? (laughs) He is the most articulate, verbal person I know. And then he couldn't read. And so the doctor said he has learning disabilities. He's dyslexic. You have to put him in a special school. My parents didn't want to believe that either. And guess what? He graduated from Harvard. He has two master's degrees. So none of us were rushing to bring him to the doctor for a diagnosis, even though his delusions were getting stranger and stranger. And I would come over and sometimes he'd be in a great mood and other times he'd be telling me that my mom's parrots who lived in the kitchen were demonic creatures. And I was like, well, they're kind of loud, but they're not spawns of the devil. And then he would go on a 45-minute tirade about how my mom's gardener was uh, engaging in acts of pagan rituals. And I was like, maybe, I don't know. You know, she's weird. She could be doing that, but I don't think she's cursing us. You know, I was always able to kind of talk some sense into him. And I have to tell you, at this point, I felt totally responsible for not only his happiness, but also his sanity because I was the only person that he saw. You know, like he had put himself in a state of solitary confinement. And even though it was his own choice, he was isolated and he was lonely and he was experiencing things that I don't think mostly any of us have gone through. Days and days and days of being completely alone. And so he turned to Facebook constantly, and he would flirt with girls on the internet as some sort of human connection. And my brother, he's such a romantic, and I'm not sure that some millennial in Florida understood his Shakespearean prose. You know, so these girls would eventually stop writing him, and that really upset my brother. And so then he decided that I was writing these girls behind his back to sabotage these relationships. And he wrote me a scathing email about it. And I, oh, I was so mad. And I walked over to his house. My face was fuming. How can you accuse me of something I would never do to you? And when I got to my brother's house that day, that was not the person that I was used to. His whole face was different. It was hard. And his body, his skinny body was kind of contorted and he had his back to me and he was smoking a cigarette and his fingers had turned completely black because he ripped off all the filters of his cigarettes. And he just said to me, this is what you're doing, you're trying to sabotage me. And I took my phone and I was hitting him with it. I was trying to say, no, please, look, go through my phone. I would never do that to you. Look, there's evidence. You can go through my phone. And he just turned his back to me. I will not be abused by you. I didn't know this person. 
I didn't know him. My brother isn't that guy, but who was in front of me did not live in the same reality that I lived in, and it was so scary. It was so scary. So my parents and I, we realized, okay, I need help. I need help with this. We need to get him to a therapist, but he refused to see a therapist. He was scared. And so I was like, let's do family therapy, right? If we tell him it's family therapy, he'll be more encouraged. He won't feel so, you know, pointed out. And so I convinced him, we're going to go to a family therapist because we live on this family compound and we all need therapy because we're all kind of crazy because you know what? We all were kind of crazy. My dad wears the same thing every day. He has the same uniform of khaki pants and a plaid shirt and he wears that every single day. My mom just happens to do his laundry and I'm manic. I can be just as manic as my brother. Granted, not exactly, but we had this one day where he came over to hang out with me and he started turning off all the lights and he was like, you know how we have this mental illness about lights being on. And I was like, you have the mental illness. And then later that night, I saw myself compulsively turning off all the lights in my house and I was like, shit, fuck, I do have that mental illness about lights. I hate lights. You know, so he was almost just an exaggeration of all of our idiosyncratic ways of being. It was just darker and more disturbing and more scary. And so we went to this family therapist. I picked him up. He had showered and changed his clothes for it even. And we get to the family therapist. And do you guys know what happened there? We picked the worst family therapist possible. (laughs) And this guy looks at my brother and says to us, uh, you know, listen here, son. I don't know if you know this, but these three people over here are very worried about you. Okay, the worst thing you can say to a paranoid person is people are talking about you behind your back. (laughs) All right, so then my mom saw this as an opportunity to tell my brother every single thing that's wrong with him. And then my brother saw it as an opportunity to tell my mother every single thing that's wrong with her. And then my dad just completely checked out and told a story about his childhood dog. (laughs) And then I was just sitting there trying to make peace between everybody. You know, and I couldn't do it. And every single dysfunctional family aspect was just brought to the surface. And then the therapist said, oh, your two hours are up. And my brother, he stormed out of the room furious. And I chased after him because I didn't want him to feel alone because I knew that was the problem. He was alone all the time. It was really hard to come back from that family therapy session. But I finally was able to convince him to talk to my mom again. Even though we would all be in the same room, my brother would talk to me. I would translate my brother's words and talk to my mom. Uh, Then she would tell me something and I would translate her words and talk to my brother. And finally, I got them talking again. Everything's gonna go back to normal, right? My mom left, the fall came, and as Halloween started coming, that's when my brother completely stopped talking to me. And that's when he wrote the manifesto about how I was a witch that was trying to murder him. And I just sat in my house and I looked across the lawn at where he was and I was so mad. And I was also so scared because if my brother thought I was trying to murder him, then what's gonna stop him from trying to murder me, right? I mean, that's how it happens on Dateline or whatever. You'd be like, oh, they were such a nice family. I didn't think anyone was capable of that. Neither did I. I didn't think my brother was capable of murdering me, but I also didn't think he was capable of believing I was a witch trying to murder him either. I didn't know what he was capable of anymore. 
And so I called my dad and I was crying on the phone and I was like, dad, please, 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 dad, please, you have to do something. Please, you have to come up. What if he tries to do something? I have a daughter. I don't know what to do. And my dad said, Tony, don't worry. You have your husband to take care of you. And I was like, oh, really, dad? That's what my husband needs on his conscience? Uh, Murdering my brother in self-defense? Can't you just fucking come up here? They didn't know what to do either. Nobody knew what to do because nobody wanted to admit what was actually going on. And so then two days later, my brother starts having a psychotic break and he starts posting every single one of his thoughts on Facebook, how I am a witch, how I'm going to murder him, and how I'm also going to murder my daughter. Oh, wait, excuse me. I'm going to ritualistically murder my daughter because I'm a witch, remember? The ritualistically is important. And then I was going to blame him for the murder. All on Facebook, post after post after post after post. And we had 160 friends in common. And I got 160 messages that day. What's going on, Tony? Are you okay? Is your daughter okay? What's happening? What's going on over there? Sending me screenshots of what he was writing. And all I could do was cry and cry and cry and cry because I couldn't understand how my brother could believe anything he wanted about me. And all I wanted to do was help him. And when my parents finally got there, they found him upstairs in my dad's study and he was holding a baseball bat, shaking, waiting to beat the witches away. And then I guess he probably felt safe for a moment and so he said, let's take a picture on Facebook and so everyone will know I'm okay. And then I saw it on my newsfeed, a family portrait. They were all smiling, my mom, my dad, and my brother, but somebody was missing. It was me. And then they took him away, and I haven't seen him since. And everybody tells me, Tony, don't take it personally. It's nothing to do with you. You can't take it personally. How can I not take this personally? It had everything to do with me. It was about me. And at the same time, I know that I can't take it personally because to take it personally is so painful. And I haven't talked to my brother about it at all. And he'll send me an email and he'll say happy birthday and he'll remind me that he reads my blog and that I am a feminist messiah, hopefully. (laughs) But we haven't spoken and I miss my brother so much. He's still here, but he's not anymore. And I don't know how to be myself around him because he thinks I'm a witch that tried to kill him. And I don't think he knows how to be himself around me anymore either. And that is sadly where we stand. I have to tell you that sometimes I go over to that house and I get high and I walk around and I'm like, this is a really spooky house. And that picture over there does look like witches. And God, those birds are really fucking terrible. And part of me completely understands almost anybody will lose their minds in that environment. And all I can say is that if my brother is going to think I'm a witch, I just really hope that one day he can see me as a good one. Thank you.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Silver Sun Pickups behind me now, and we just heard from Tony Naj. Now, don't forget to check out Chris Soa's Sex with Strangers podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or at sexwithstrangershow.com. I am going to read for you now where Risk is appearing next on May 20th. May 20th, we're in Denver, Colorado. Our big return to Denver is on May 20th. It's going to be a hell of a show. On May 24th, we return to Brooklyn at the Bell House. Come on out, Brooklyn, May 24th. Now, we have three shows in the Pacific Northwest area on June 9th. We're in Portland, Oregon. The theme is hype. We're still taking pitches for that. On June 10th, we're in Seattle, Washington. The theme is destructive. Still taking pitches for that. June 11th, we're in Vancouver. The theme is monster. Still taking pitches for that, but the window for getting pitches in is closing fast for those shows. So pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. Again, it's June 9th in Portland, June 10th in Seattle, June 11th in Vancouver. Our next Los Angeles show is on June 17th at the Bootleg Theater. And on July 1st, we're in North Adams, Massachusetts at the Mass Mocha. The theme is revolting. We're still taking pitches for that one. July 8th, we're in Washington, D.C. at the Black Cat. The theme is one of a kind. Still taking pictures there. July 15th, we're in Philadelphia at World Cafe Live. The theme is Revelation. That is July 15th. September 9th, we are in Salt Lake City, Utah. Still taking pictures for the Philly show and for the Salt Lake show. On September 9th is the Salt Lake show at Urban Lounge. You can always find the list of where we're appearing next at risk-show.com slash tour. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Risk Show. On Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. Please comment about the show on iTunes. Those iTunes comments get a lot of attention, and you can comment specifically about the stories on the listen pages at risk-show.com. Remember, we teach storytelling, too. So if you'd like to do a one-on-one -on -one session over Skype with me or an in-person workshop in New York or Minneapolis or Los Angeles, we're there for that, too. We also teach corporate workshops. And we have workshops you can take in your own time that you can download as video courses. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. trip.
I mean, talk about an identity crisis. Wow.